All right, good morning. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord God, we thank you that uh, as the Pharisees sought to test you, uh, that they were actually brought under a test of themselves. And Lord, we pray that this morning that you would test our faith to see whether it is genuine. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, see how worthy Jesus is of all of our worship and how we might respond uh, well and accurately uh, as your Spirit speaks to our hearts. Move us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series through the book of Matthew. uh, And in the last week of uh, Jesus' ministry uh, in his um, pre-resurrection body uh, here on earth. And uh, in this last week, uh, Jesus is getting... We see several interactions, I suppose, between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, different people, as Jesus is teaching and these different groups are coming to try and discredit Jesus, trying to point out where he's wrong. Last week... As you know, the Pharisees had their uh, sorry, the Sadducees had their go. They tried to discredit Jesus and his teaching, and they failed. This week, the Pharisees have decided it's their turn, and in fact, it's their final uh, go at trying to test and discredit Jesus before Jesus uh, actually silences them all. So, uh, and it's fascinating actually. This week. Uh, we see that there was a lawyer. So not just one of the Pharisees or one of their followers who've come before, but they've gone to the top, their most uh, experienced, their best arguers, the lawyer. To the lawyers amongst us, uh, this is one of your kin, hopefully not too close to this one. Um, But the lawyers here are at the top of the tree. Uh, These are the ones who are supposed to be able to discredit Jesus. And in fact... They test him, verse 35 tells us. Now, all of these tests come down really to one matter, and that is a matter of doctrine. That is, what does the Bible mean from what it says? Now, it's very easy for us to read out what the Bible says. We can pick it up and read it for ourselves. We can hear someone read it. In fact, we have probably more access to the Bible uh, in our current day and age than we've ever had before. It's in many languages. Uh, it's accessible on almost all of our devices. Many people have multiple uh, copies of the Bible in their home. But what does the Bible mean? Well, that is a different story. And people have argued over this many times. And this is what Jesus is getting to. He is teaching us Doctrine, that is, what does the Bible mean? And we do this uh, through actually three different tests today. There's three tests that we're going to have a look as we come to see what is the doctrine that Jesus wants to teach us. And the first test of true doctrine is correct interpretation. Second test of true doctrine is the authority of Jesus. And Jesus is actually spending time in this interaction we see in Matthew 22, working through these. And the third and final test is the test of the heart. So first test for us this morning of true doctrine, what does the Bible mean, is the test of correct interpretation. Now, in the ancient world, uh, they used to test metal to see, particularly precious metals, to see whether they had a high level of purity in them. They used to use a um, square piece of slate or another dark stone, and it was called a touchstone. 
So the idea was that if you had some gold, uh, you would rub it against the touchstone and then apply different acids to see the purity of that gold or precious stone. And so you can imagine uh, that you had a merchant and uh, they wanted to test the purity of your gold to see its value. And so they would bring out their touchstone, they would mark the touchstone with this uh, precious metal and then test it to see how valuable it truly is. And this is what we bring to Jesus. We actually, firstly, as the Pharisees are doing, casting the test over Jesus to see whether he passes it, to see if, as Jesus comes against the touchstone, to see how pure and accurate his life is against the doctrine of the Bible. And we see, hopefully, what is pure and what is not pure from this test. So let's have a look. Let's see how the Pharisees try to test Jesus. Now, it's pretty simple. They come up to Jesus uh, in verse 36, and they've sort of conferred amongst themselves, and they've got the best lawyers, the best religious minds of the day. They've conferred amongst themselves. This is how we can finally catch Jesus out and that is by narrowing him down to work out what is the greatest commandment. It's a really good question, isn't it? In fact, uh, the Old Testament has 613 commandments, and so Jesus has to pick one. They want him just to narrow it down to one as being the most important or the greatest commandment. They think, of course, that they're going to catch Jesus out because there was some debate amongst the rabbis of the day and the Pharisees. Some of them thought, no, Particular commandments were more important than others, and others, of course, other commandments were more important. And so there was a divide. And so they thought if they can narrow Jesus down to saying one, then he will get some of them offside. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he says, as in a second one, and the second is like, like it, verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus is uh, appealing to the Pharisees who are, these guys are the you know, uttermost teachers of the law. He's appealing to the lawyers and he is saying to them, yes, there is a great commandment and this is what it is. The first one, there's, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and your mind, uh, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In fact, it's quite uh, famous would have been quite famous amongst the Jews at that time. That was typically their morning and evening prayer, the Shema. And so they would uh, recite that often in very religious communities, morning and evening. So Jesus is affirming that that is the most important commandment. And then he says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That one comes from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And essentially Jesus is saying that if you get these two right, you get everything else right. Because that's what he says in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is saying that there is a priority in the Bible as to what you know, God calls his people to do. That is to love him and to love your neighbor. Most people would be somewhat familiar with those two commandments. And so he's saying you get those two right you get the other 611 right too. Now, the big question, of course, for the Pharisees is, well, is this true? You know, 
Jesus says these things, but not only did he say them, but did Jesus actually practice what he preached? And as we look through the Gospels, we find that Jesus definitely did. He called people to worship God the Father wholeheartedly, not just with their mouths, but with their whole lives, not just for show, but for God himself. And Jesus demonstrated amazing love for neighbour. That is, not just people who were you know, well-to-do in society, people who he would be looked upon favourably if he cared and loved, for, loved and healed them. But no, Jesus was willing to love and to serve those, the least of these, in fact, in the culture and society. You know, those who were poor, those who were outcast, those who were maligned for various reasons. And so we see, as far as the Pharisees go trying to test Jesus, Jesus' purity comes up 100%. But then, of course, we realise that as Jesus is saying things, he's also bringing his rule, his test over the Pharisees themselves. Because the Pharisees could not decide within themselves what were the weightier matters of the law, what were the most important and what were the least important. The Pharisees were consumed by things like washing their hands to make their soul pure. The Pharisees were consumed by literally dividing up all of their possessions, even over to their spice rack, it says dill, mint and cumin, they would take 10% of and give into the temple. So they were doing things that were just really not that important. And they were doing things to be seen by others, not capturing God's heart for worship and love of people. In fact, more than that, they failed these abominably. They did not love God first. In fact, Jesus continues to call them hypocrites. And we'll see in chapter 23 that Jesus pronounces seven woes over the scribes and the Pharisees for their lack of true worship before God. You know, they continue to do things not for God's sake, but for their own sake. In fact, it seems like religion for the Pharisees was really all about them and not about God. And uh, one of the great failures of the Pharisees, as uh, Jesus has pointed out before, is their failure to love their neighbour. In fact, in uh, Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells when one of the uh, lawyers, again, of the Pharisees, comes to test Jesus. And the question they ask him in Luke's Gospel is, what was needed to inherit eternal life? Jesus quotes the same two commandments. And then they try and, you know, catch him again. And so they ask Jesus, well, what does it mean to love your neighbour? And then Jesus, of course, teaches about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he's saying that, you know, because the Samaritans were not loved by the Jews. In fact, they were despised. They were seen as sort of the cousin they didn't spend any time with and didn't want to hang around with. And, was, and Jesus said to them, even the Samaritans know how to love their neighbour and yet you don't. Point being, the Pharisees themselves have been revealed for their impurity as they're cast across the touchstone of the law and they themselves have failed. So Jesus is actually showing us what it means to have a correct interpretation of the law. It's to get the priorities right. And we've seen that Jesus passes that test because he lived it out, he practiced what he preached. We've seen the Pharisees failed that test because they preached the wrong things and they didn't practice the right things. But then we also see a test for us. 
In fact, Jesus is testing our hearts to show there are errors that we can make when it comes to having a correct interpretation of God's word, to getting doctrine right. And the first error that we make, and is quite like the errors that the Pharisees make, is we do not make distinctions between the greater commandments and the lesser. That is, it's very easy for Christian people to get consumed about the wrong things. We major on the minors. For example, the Pharisees were very consumed by outward signs, like hand washings, like bringing your spice rack to you know, the temple to make as part of your offering, to saying loud prayers to be seen by others, by, for doing good works to be seen by others. And Christians can do the same thing. We can major on the minors. We can, in fact, get the second one of these right, but miss the first one. We can major on doing good works. In fact, we can think that if only I do good things then God will accept me. But in our heart, we're not doing it because of worship for God. We're doing it to get things from God. We're saying, we're sort of cutting a deal with God and saying, if I do a few good things, then you'll do some good things for me. Sometimes we treat God like a bit of karma. You know, like if we do good for him, he'll do good for us. If we do bad to him, he will do bad to us. But God is not like that. In fact, we can major on the minors with uh, particular doctrines as well. We can major on the minors when it comes to things like creationism or end times or even, now let me say this really particularly, we can be so focused on doctrine itself that we miss having love for God and love for neighbour. It becomes an intelligence test rather than an act of worship in our lives. So that's the first error. We, we major on the minors. We don't understand like the Pharisees should have what are the weightier matters of the law. The second error, I think, is quite often brought out from this text by uh, Christian people today and religious people, and it's oversimplifying the Scriptures. So we say things like, all I need to do is to love God and love my neighbour, and that's it. And we can sort of get on with life. Now, if you can literally do those two things, then good on you. But those two things, as it turns out, are actually very hard to do. And the Bible is not given to us in one verse. In fact, Jesus, funnily enough, does not dismiss the rest of the Bible when he says that, but he says... On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. We see the narrow, simplistic version or the headline, and then we see the details in the rest of the Bible. I'll put it this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor of yourself is the headline, and the rest is the detail. Or an, another way to put it is... The, uh, what we're supposed to do is to love God with all our heart, mind and strength and love our neighbour. And how we're supposed to do it is in the rest of the Bible. We're given 66 books to explain these things in much detail. And so it's very easy to oversimplify the Scriptures. And I think often when we do that, we're actually saying, I don't need to read the Bible. The rest of the Bible doesn't matter. The Old Testament doesn't matter because Jesus has given us two commandments. In fact, Jesus said more than this. 
far more than this and he explained it in much detail because to do this is actually extremely difficult. And as uh, Jesus affirms then that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, he's saying that it is all valuable, but you must get it in its right order. So this testing of ourselves is quite important as we've sort of seen that uh, we must get a correct interpretation from Jesus and he passes that test. We see we must get a correct interpretation from the Pharisees and well, they fail that test. And then we pass the test, the touchstone over our own lives to see if there are impurities in our own hearts. Have we missed the major focus of the Bible or are we trying to admit some parts but dismiss others in our lives? So that is our first test for this morning, the correct interpretation of doctrine. The second test of doctrine is the authority of Christ. Now, the good way to think about this, and a good metaphor for thinking about this, is the testing of swords. The uh, ancient Japanese samurai blade is called the katana, and it was widely known as one of the strongest, sharpest, and most effective and deadly swords that's ever been developed. And katanas would be thoroughly tested by said samurai before they were deployed in battle or in protection of others. In fact, one of the uh, practices they used for testing was called tamashigiri, which samurais used to, they used to test their blades on real people to see if they were actually effective in battle. Don't do that, by the way. But interestingly, of course, and they wanted to prove the point, that the sword was only worthy if it really worked. It couldn't just look good. It had to do what it was intended to do. It had to be effective in the real place. Now, as we move the metaphor to thinking about God's Word, in fact, we know that God's Word is described in the Bible as the sword of the Spirit. We see that Jesus is testing the doctrine of these Pharisees He's testing, you know, whether they actually really understand the Bible because they think that they're Bible people by seeing whether they understand the authority of Jesus in this second part of our reading for today. Jesus is testing to see whether they understand that the King of all Israel is standing before them. Jesus is also trying to uh, show the Pharisees and these religious people that what they believe actually needs to stack up in real life too. You know, the Pharisees, you know, think that they've got it right, unlike the Sadducees who didn't believe in the prophets and the writings. Just taken aside for a minute, the Old Testament is divided up into three parts as far as the um, Hebrew Bible is concerned. So the first part is the Torah, or the, the first five books of the Bible, the law. Second part is the writings, Uh, which includes the Psalms, Proverbs, historical um, narratives, that kind of thing. And the third part is the prophets. Now, the Sadducees only believed in the law. That's why they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they didn't believe in angels or demons or even the afterlife. But the Pharisees, well, they believed in it all. They believed in the law, first five books of the Bible, the writings, which includes the Psalms, which Jesus is about to refer to, and they also believed in the prophets. And so when Jesus then turns to speak to them from the writings, that is, uh, from the Psalms, he is appealing to their intelligence. 
He's saying, do you really understand what the Bible says? You think you're smart. You think you're a pack of really intelligent people who know the Bible inside out. Let me see whether you understand what it means. So Jesus is testing their swords. And it's, it's a fairly simple test. He, Jesus refers to uh, the first verse of Psalm 110, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It's a fairly simple uh, psalm. The implication, though, of this psalm is very significant. The Pharisees knew that people were calling Jesus the son of David, and the Pharisees knew that this psalm talks about the Messiah or the son of David. And so he asked them, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus is pointing out two things. He's pointing out that the psalm points to uh, the Messiah being Lord of David, higher than the greatest king of Israel. In fact, if God calls him Lord, then he must even be equal with God. That's the implication of this psalm, which the Pharisees are perhaps fearful to acknowledge. Because if it's true, and therefore if what they've been saying about Jesus is true, that he is the Messiah, then Jesus is also the Son of God, and God has finally come to his people. But this psalm also tells us two further things. It tells us that this Lord, referred to in Psalm 110, will ascend to the right hand of God. He will be someone who has high authority. In fact, we know this from uh, the rest of the Gospels, that Jesus died, he rose again from the dead, and then 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And where is Jesus now? It's a great question to ask yourself. It's an encouraging uh, answer. Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's why we can't see him, because he's not here. Okay, so that's the first thing it tells us. The second thing is that uh, in this sort of last part of uh, verse 1 of Psalm 110, it says, "Until sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Not only will Jesus ascend to the greatest place of authority at the right hand of the Father, but Jesus will also crush God's enemies. He will crush sin, Satan, and death. And so Jesus is pointing out from that psalm that if you really get it, then you should be worshipping him and him alone. But they haven't got it yet. So it is a simple test. It is also, however, a deep test, this test on the authority of Jesus, one that in fact cuts to the heart. Uh, as we go forward after Jesus' ascension, so when this has sort of all come to pass, and in Acts chapter 2, we see that uh, the Apostle Peter is preaching based on this, to this very text actually, uh, to uh, people who had not yet believed in Jesus. It says that they were cut to the heart by it. Let me read this out to you from Acts 2.36. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
Now, when they'd heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You see, once this news of Jesus having great authority, him being Lord and Christ, comes to bear upon our souls, it really goes deep. It cuts to the heart. And if you don't get it, well, it won't cut to your heart. You'll sort of ignore it or dismiss it. But if you do get it, you'll say the things like those people in Acts chapter 2 said, brothers, what shall we do? The reality of this comes to bear upon people. They've realized that in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And when this comes to bear witness to your soul, you realize you must do something about it. You must respond. As this is the great test for us, of course. If we really understand the authority of Jesus, like he's referred to here in Psalm 110, like Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 from the same psalm, if we really believe it, it should impact our lives to action. We would ask ourselves and say the things, brothers, what shall we do? In fact, we know that in Acts chapter 2, they're moved to repentance. They're moved to ask God's forgiveness for not living the way that they ought to and to turn and put their trust in Jesus and to live for him. Unfortunately, there is also a dark response that we can have to this. And we really catch this at the end of our reading for today in verse 46. It says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They were left speechless. They had nothing to say. And that is the case for us too today. We can harden our hearts towards God and towards the authority of Jesus over our lives. We can harden our hearts to doing something about what he said. And so it will be that not just now, but actually Jesus taught this uh, just a chapter before, that on that last day, we too will be left speechless with nothing to say when we're brought before the judgment of God. And so we do not want to fail this second test on the authority of Jesus, on the authority of Christ. That is where correct doctrine lies, on recognizing who Jesus is. Okay, let's move on to our last and final test. The third test, the test of the heart. Now, the reason why we sort of cover the uh, test of correct interpretation and the second test of the authority of Jesus is because it's very, I guess, straightforward to read those things and go, yeah, that's true. And yet there'd be no change in your life. In fact, this is probably the great problem of religion is that we can accept things to be true or that's fine for you if you want to believe it, or even we can want it to be right at times, and yet it not change our lives at all. There's a problem there, isn't there? And the reason is because we need it to go deep down into the center of who we are, into the heart. Now, I spent about an hour yesterday removing a stump from the ground. And the heart is a lot like a stump. Let me explain. You can cut down the branches, 
You can even cut the trunk off, but if the stump remains, the tree is still in the ground and you must toil and sweat and try and get that thing out. That is really the heart of the tree. And in fact, if the stump remains, so do the roots. And so unless, the, unless that stump, the heart of the tree is removed, you haven't fully done your job. And if you don't want it to grow back, well, you need to deal with that stump as I did. The truth for this relates to us in this way. Even if we understand the correct interpretation and even if we understand the authority of Jesus intellectually or religiously, it cannot make a difference to our lives unless we get right down to the bottom of the heart. And the heart is tricky. In fact, the Bible says that it's deceitful above all else. It's like an unruly stump. You just can't get it out no matter how much you beat it. The heart must be dealt with in particular ways and use particular tools to reveal it, to expose it, to transform it. This is the difference between religion and Christianity at its core. Religion is, to some degree, about knowledge. Or, to some degree, it's about doing particular things. But Christianity, it's all about who you know and how that transforms your heart. Jesus has, of course, taught much about this in Matthew's Gospel, uh, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But here again, uh, we see that the heart is the key place that changes all the outward effects of everything else. In fact, When Jesus pointed out these two commandments, I want to give you a little bit of context on both of these as we uh, bring upon a test upon the heart. Uh, The first uh, and greatest commandment that Jesus brought forward was from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me read it out from... So in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse uh, 5 and 6, let me read it out for you and point out how the heart has to deal with this. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Okay, so the heart is important. The heart is how these things come about. The heart is the first part of our love for God. The heart in the Hebrew world was the center of motivation. To get the heart right, you get everything. The heart is where your inner desires come from. The Bible tells us it's also where the sin arises from, our desires. It's not your actions, it's not sin itself, but your heart. This internal part of us which decides where everything else comes out from. So that was the first commandment that Jesus referred to. The second, of course, also references the heart. Let me give some context from Leviticus 19. It says, from verse 17, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so both of these commandments that Jesus is referring to need to come out of the center of the person, the heart. If they get it in the depth of who they are, then they will live it out. If they get it in the depth of who they are, they will practice what they preach. This is what Jesus is getting down to. 
And the Pharisees hopefully knew their Bible well enough to begin to realize that this is what Jesus is getting at. In fact, Jesus revealed that if we sin and don't do these things, it's because our heart is wrong and that's what needs transformation. And this brings us to my last point for this morning. As we test the heart and as we look over the heart and realize how important it is, we need God to do a transformation of our heart in order that we might be people who pass this test of doctrine. You see, one of the problems that these Pharisees had was they had all the right information, they had the scriptures, they believed, you know, the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. They believed it all, supposedly, but their hearts were unchanged. Even after Jesus went through his public death, his public resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, many of their hearts still remained unchanged. A good example of this is, of course, Saul. Saul, who in we uh, meet in, um, I think, Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, who is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's one of the best of the best when it comes to these religious leaders. He's one of the best of the best when it comes to understanding or at least knowing what the Bible says. And yet he still hasn't got it. In fact, there's something that happens to people when they know the Bible really well, but they don't get changed from the heart, that they can become bad people. Unfortunately, many of us know people like that. People who know their Bibles well, but they're not nice people, they're nasty. Deep down, there's something wrong. And you realize that? It's the heart. The heart remains unchanged. And so Saul was this excellent Pharisee. He must have heard about what Jesus had done. And he decided that he wanted to put a stop to it because it was interrupting the religion that he believed in so strongly. He decided that he would help put to death Christians who were creating such an uproar, people who believed in this Jesus. You know, he himself was a religious man. He himself did the right things as far as he was concerned. And yet he was filled with hatred and fear. He did not recognize Jesus. And so we actually meet Saul as he's on the road from one place to another. He's on the road to a place called Damascus. And he is planning to murder and arrest as many Christians as he possibly can. And it was on this place that his heart was transformed. Notice that he didn't do anything to deserve it. In fact, he'd gone the totally wrong way with all his religious knowledge and understanding. And it was in this place, as he continued in his rejection of Jesus' authority and the true intentions of the Bible, the correct interpretation of the Bible, it was in that place that Jesus met him. Now, this begs a question for you and me this morning. How will we respond? Are we in a place where we have been rejecting Jesus for some time? Are we in a place where maybe we know what the Bible says, but we actually have not put it into practice? Perhaps we've realized that actually it's our heart that hasn't changed. 
we might have even tried lots of different things. You know, we've, we've tried to get it right. We've worked really hard to do good things and have appearances of good things, but we can never quite get it right. We, like Saul did, need a Damascus road encounter with Jesus. I want you to notice something. Jesus went out to meet with Saul. Even in his sinful condition, even in his hypocrisy, because he didn't really understand the intention of the Bible. He didn't interpret it properly. He didn't come under the authority of the Son. And so he'd become an enemy of God. And he actually realizes this later, we read in the Bible. But God came to him. What does this tell us about the nature of God? That it's by grace. If someone like Saul can be saved who is utterly opposed, utterly opposed to God, actually murdering Christians, then it shows us that the God who is willing to meet with him is willing to save him, not on the basis of anything that Saul had done, but on the basis that he was willing to die for sinners. And so that is good news for us today, particularly if we realize that we have been living a life rejecting God. Or we've been lying to ourselves and hardening our hearts. It's very easy to do. And yet we have a God that's willing to meet us. And so it's on this road to Damascus that Jesus meets with Saul. This is the crucified, the resurrected and ascended Jesus. Meets with him in spirit and calls him by name. In fact, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus brought the reality of Saul's hatred of God and rejection of Jesus' authority to bear upon him. What Saul didn't realize until that moment was that though he thought he was doing the right things by God, he actually hated God. That's a pretty strong way to put it, isn't it? But it is a scary thought because you don't want to be put under the touchstone of Jesus on that last day and find out that it all been for nothing. You never really got to the heart. You never actually practiced what you preached. It sort of kept going in one ear and out the other. Jesus brought the reality of how, what Saul was really doing to bear upon him. And he knew. He knew that Paul, oh, sorry, Saul could do nothing to save himself. And yet Jesus met with him. Because we, like Saul, have a God and Savior who is willing to meet with us. You see, Jesus calls upon unchanged people, even today, even now, people whose lives have been in opposition to Jesus for a long time, people whose sin patterns and behaviours won't let up in their lives, he calls to meet with them and he calls them to come to terms with who he is and what he has done for them. You see, even today, as we, re we remembered that 
Jesus has ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is now present amongst his people, even now. As we meet in this room, the Spirit of Jesus is present. And he calls to us. Come to him. Receive forgiveness from sin. Receive a changed heart. Be transformed in your inner self by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. One of the most compelling things about Jesus, one of the things that really draws our heart to him is that he totally lived this out and practiced what he preached. He did this even unto a cross. He was willing to die for sinners so that we might be set free and live a full life with him. And so let me pray and give thanks for all that he's done. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done and all that you are. Uh, we recognize this morning that we need you. We need to be humbled like Saul was in the Damascus Road. Uh, Lord, it's a very scary thing to be tested by you. And yet we ask that you would change and transform and renew us by your spirit today to believe and trust in you. And Lord, would you move this morning amongst those who have wrestled and struggled with this to change our hearts, to bring us before you, Lord Jesus, the crucified, the risen and ascended Savior, that we might believe and trust in you and not in ourselves anymore. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.